The following For the City Church sermon is part of our summer sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising, entitled Under the Sun, from the book of Ecclesiastes. We hope you enjoy it. So in Ecclesiastes, that's where we're at, and uh, as Ryan just read chapter 4, um, one thing that stands out real quick is, is if you're paying attention and if you're looking at it, God is nowhere to be mentioned in chapter 4. Nowhere. And there's times when we go through Ecclesiastes, it feels like, is this even, should this even be in the Bible, right? Like, but it absolutely should be, because uh, it is, because it's God's Word, which means all of it's true. We just got done singing a song um, that we trust in your word. And when we say that, we mean all of it, right? Um, not, not the parts we like, only. Not, not just the parts that, that, you know, oh, I like that, but that makes me uncomfortable, and that's probably a bad translation. That can't be what it says. Um, and so last week in chapter 3, I'm going to read one verse, because it really does set up the, the chapter we're in but it also is going to touch on something that happened that was very profound this week in our country. Um, so look at Ecclesiastes 3.16 with me. It says this, it says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, remember the phrase under the sun is just meaning life really in, in this, this, this thing called earth apart from God, this thing under the sun that in the place, listen, in the place of justice, even there there was wickedness. What could that mean? That could mean in the government, in the, in the, the temporal kingdom, in the church. There's, there's a place where there should be justice, but even there, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And, and this, this grieved the, the teacher. It should grieve us. I need you to stick with me here, Okay. I really need you to stick with me. There, there's no greater wickedness than killing over 63 million babies in the womb of their mother. I know some of you are amening that, and some of you are struggling with me actually talking about this. I'd ask you to at least hang in there. This past Friday on June 24th of 2022, a great step was made towards righteousness when Roe was overturned. Uh, this has brought a wide array of responses to this decision. Um, debating and fighting are prevalent. If you just have any kind of social media, you can see it. My concern is this morning is, is not about engaging political or cultural discussions that are taking place all over the country right now. And you might think, well, you just did engage that. And I would say, kindly, you're wrong. This is not a political debate. It's not a political discussion. This is a biblical discussion. And we can't say and sing we love the Bible without discussing things that the Bible speaks very clearly upon. Um, it, so what is my hope this morning? My hope is to help you think biblically. That's my hope. My hope, because at the end of the day, whether you like me or not, isn't my main concern. I want you to like me. I want you to love me. But that's not my aim. My aim is that when I stand before the Creator who has placed me in a position to speak on behalf of His Word, I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so if you hate me after this, isn't, you're not, your problem's not with me. It's really not. Your problem's with God, and it's, it's with God's Word. And so what does God's Word say? Well, it has a lot to say. And and this morning, we're not going to get into a ton of that. Just know this, that God is the author of life. And we are not the author of death. 
And when we intervene in that way, we are taking the place of God. God knits humanity in the womb of the mother. And he intends for it to live. So let me say clearly, let me say unapologetically, yet I hope with God's grace humbly how we ought to respond. One, as God's people, we should praise God. We should praise God that for the first time in almost 50 years in this country, it is no longer seen as a constitutional right for people to take the lives of children in their mother's womb. We should praise God for this. We should. Two, we should love women with, with unplanned or unwanted pregnancies who feel like abortion is their only hope. Who feel like they just lost their only hope. And, and we shouldn't be surprised when, when, when a woman who does not know the saving grace of Jesus feels this way. This is the only thing she understands many times because we live as, if, if you're an unbeliever, in a darkened mind, in a place where truth is opposed, it's suppressed, and you're in the domain of darkness and you're believing lies of Satan. That's where I was for 23 years of my life until the Lord saved me. That's where you were until whenever he saved you. So we should love them. We should love the fathers too. Often they don't get discussed. Many times they may not want the child, but there's many times or often they do. And many times they have no voice in this discussion. Church, we should commit our lives and our families and our church families in a very fresh way to care for the unwanted pregnancies. All of them and everyone involved. We should, we should be committed to supporting nonprofit organizations who seek to give every avenue except for this avenue. And what that means is they come alongside. There are some heroes in this particular room that I love and adore who give their lives to this very thing. And, and so many of the arguments, which I'm not trying to get into today, would say, well, you don't love... Unless you love the whole way to the end and all these things. But can I just tell you that most of those things are false narratives. Christians give their time, their energy, their talents, their lives to giving life and care and voice to the oppressed. And it's been true all throughout history. And so many times we just read some trite little saying on some little social media thing. And we say, well, that must be true. It's on the internet. Do better than that. Do your homework. Understand what you believe and why you believe it. And if you want to know where to find truth, go to God's Word. And if it corrects you, that's probably a good thing. If you never go to the Word of God and be corrected, I don't know what you're reading. First and second, nowhere. Often I go to the Word of God and, and it, it, it makes me very uncomfortable and it corrects my thinking. Our aim is to align our thinking to the Word of God, to have our minds transformed, not to be shoved into a mold and be conformed to the patterns of this world. But it doesn't mean it's easy to do what Christ has called us to do. As a matter of fact, he says to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow him. All those things are very unpleasant, but that in that you will find life. You will find life because that's where he is, right? The, the last thing is, understand that you and I cannot legislate heart change. I understand that. Therefore, proclaim the hope that is found in Jesus alone. The creator who came to us as a baby in the womb of a mother, right? To love us, 
to care for us, to live for us, and to die so that you and I might have hope in him, life in him, abundant life in him for all of eternity. Now, now this is just going to cut to the quick, but if you can convince me that Mary should have or could have or had the right to abort Jesus, then I will gladly sit down and say, you're right. But you'll never convince me of that because in that moment, you would have aborted the hope of eternity for every human being. So church, I know this is complex. And no matter where you're at currently processing the complexities of this divisive decision, I mean, just look around. People are fighting everywhere. May God's people seek to listen. May God's people seek to explain. May God's people repent. May God's people love. And, and no matter where you're at, right now, this morning, may you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4.3 says. We do not fight against flesh and blood. So no matter where someone falls on that particular decision line, our aim is to love them, but to love them with grace and truth. And if you love them in any other way, you're loving them in a very unbiblical way because Jesus is full of grace and Jesus is full of truth. And to love somebody detached from truth is only to love you and your agenda. Our aim is not to have everyone in our community say how awesome we are. Our aim is to be faithful to the God who has clearly spoken on a subject and to love everyone as he has loved. So there was no way for me personally, and I prayed a lot, sought counsel to come in here this morning and not discuss that. To do so would be ignorant to God and ignorant to God's people. And, and if that offends you, I know there's churches that won't talk about it this morning and you can find one there. And I don't say that to be rude or to push you out of here. I just want you to know for the city church, as long as I have breath and hopefully every elder that comes after me will gladly and unapologetically be a voice for the God who has spoken clearly. So with that as your, I don't even want to say introduction, um, let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Where today, Koheleth, or the teacher, or the preacher, or the gatherer, uh, however you want to say that, um, is on his, he's continuing his journey for the meaning of life under the sun. Um, remember, this is the guy who, who had, I mean, he had the resources to see if the grass would be greener on the other side. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have to guess. He didn't have to go and Google it. He didn't have to live vicariously through someone else on a social media app. He could just do it. Whatever it was. He's the king. It's good to be king. I don't know. I mean, I believe that. I believe that by faith. It's got to be good to be king. And he was king, and it was probably really good. You know, Malcolm Forbes coined the phrase, you've heard this, I'm sure, he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? You heard that phrase? Yeah? Okay. Well, being a competitive person, um, which I am, that's a confession, right? I hear that and I start to do a quick inventory, right? And, and it doesn't take long before I realize, well, I'm losing, <laughs> right? Like, because if the guy with the most toys, if when he dies, he wins, I know I don't have the most toys. I don't have the most toys of the people in this room, let alone this city, let alone U.S., let alone the globe, right? So I'm losing. And I got to tell you, I, I hate losing. Now, I try not to lose in a way that is, 
is, uh, you know, like a big old adult temper tantrum, right? I, I have done that. I try not to. I haven't done that in a long time because I almost don't compete in many things anymore. So maybe that's why. I don't know if it's my heart's grown in wisdom or if I've just eliminated all the options that bring out the ugly me. I hope it's the, the first, right? But, but even that phrase, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. I can, as I'm reading Ecclesiastes, I can hear Coleth whispering in my ear. Yeah, but he, but he still dies. And then he leaves his stuff to someone else. So, so then the question becomes is, what is winning? Well, let's look. And I got to tell you, this first three verses is pretty rough. You never see this on a placard. Uh, you, just, you just never see this anywhere. Listen to this. This sounds like Generation X. Like, this sounds like a dark grunge song. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. What's the, the main thread here? Isolation makes oppression worse. It's bad to be oppressed. It's really horrible to be oppressed and be alone and have no one to comfort you, right? On the side of their oppressor was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And, and I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and, he, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That's a tough verse to read. And listen, ever since the thud in the garden, the world has been and continues to be full to the brim with love of self and hatred of others. I mean, it's, the, it's just sin, right? It's, and in America, I, and I, by the way, in case you're curious, I love America, thank God for America, but there's a rugged individualism that's in America that has brought about much good, but it has brought about much isolation and individualistic thinking and not thinking of the community that's around them. And, and when you pour out those ingredients, the, the love of self, the hatred of others, the, the rugged individualism, what you get often is oppression. And oppression is, is to act violently towards, to, de, to, to defraud, right? To extort, to be proud and insolent toward, to, to do wrongdoings to people, to exploit, to abuse. And it will not take you long, and it won't take long to look around and see it's everywhere. I mean, it really is everywhere on a global scale, and particularly even within this own country. I think that there's less oppression in America than in other countries. And you're like, oh, you can't be saying that. I've been to other countries. And I'm telling you, that's, that's the reality. And if you don't think that, you've not been out of this country. But, but God, listen, God's country, God's people is in America. And that might be a new thing for you, right? Um, we are not his chosen people. But we can give thanks to the God who has placed us in this. But can I just tell you, there's oppression here. There's oppression everywhere under the sun when someone has power and you have something that they want. That's what happens. If you want to understand war, understand that. Somebody else has something we want and we're willing to take it by force. And if you understand war, you can understand history. And this has happened since the garden. On a local level, we see the poorest of the poor. And I mean the working poor. Let me be very clear here. Getting poorer. Education systems failing our children, fathers abusing wives and children. On a global scale sometimes, and even on a local scale, we can see sex trafficking, slavery, terrorism, street children, 
abortion, genocide, and on and on. And, and the injustice of it all has the teacher thinking some very dark thoughts. Just read the first three verses again in your time and think about what he's saying. Essentially, what he's saying is you're better off dead. But, but even better than dead is just never even coming into existence at all. That's what he's saying. Now, it's, it's, it's hyperbole to get you to understand the pain of when he sees this. I wish I never had seen this. And so it goes on. Does, does it seem dark to have this come from the pages of Scripture? Because there it is. That's what it says. I'm thankful that the Bible is never trite or simplistic when unpacking the evil that happens within the world. It has real answers for very difficult situations. Notice, followers, we should never be trite or simplistic in our response to suffering either. So many times what we need to do is, is if you had an hour with somebody, uh, you took 55 minutes to hear them before you gave them five minutes of hope. And we should just, and there's, by the way, gentle correction to people online. So many times, especially right now in the discussion that's happening with the, the, the decision to overturn Roe, there's so many simplistic and unprofitable, unhelpful, cruel messages going out by God's people in almost a triumphant way. Well, we should celebrate. I will be unapologetic in celebrating. But what we ought not do is to continue to, to beat down the people who are not understanding, but to come alongside and to be a picture of grace and truth and love in their lives. And so God, help us to do that. So you see the oppression. It makes you sick. What, what do you do? What does a person do when all they see is injustice happening all around them? And, and all, all people attempt to cope with this kind, of, this kind of oppression through generally a couple different avenues. One is through isolating themselves often. But they can isolate themselves in one of two ways. In giving themselves towards work or towards I'm just shutting it all down, putting on my PJs, and I'm not getting out of bed for the rest of my life. Both are just busying themselves, right? So if point one is discontentment leads to hating your neighbor and destroying yourself. And you're like, well, where do you see discontentment? Well, let's look. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 8. It says, then I saw all the toil, all the work, and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So the first thing we see is envy. Right, You see it right there in the text. Right, That's, That comes from discontentment. Someone has something I want. I'm going to work very hard to make sure that I have that and even have more than them. All right. Well, that's vanity. What, what about the next thing? Well, what we see next is we see laziness. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. Right? It's biblical. Right? So, so what do we see here? We see laziness. So one is like you're just going to work nonstop for the, the things that you think you got to have to make yourself happy. One says, that's crazy. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here and, and eat my knuckles. A knuckle sandwich maybe. I don't know. Better, though, listen, better, here, this is better, is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So, so here's some, okay, here's some good news. You want something that's better? Not being the kid that's along the parade lines when all the candy gets thrown out and everybody's gone and crabbing and you got two handfuls of things and the kid beside you is like, I just want a Tootsie Roll, which I can't understand because they're not that great. 
But just getting one handful, right? Maybe picking up one hand at your body and having a handful of peace along the way because you're helping someone out and you still got some candy in your right or left hand. And so he's saying, he said, again, I saw this is all vanity and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to his toil and his eyes are never satisfied. So you see, with riches or, or and he never asked, so he's you're pointing out greed here. This is the, the CEO executive that has no one to enjoy life with, right? He could serve you the finest meal, but he could never convince anyone to come and sit down and enjoy it with him. Now, they might come for the steak, but they ain't coming for the company, I promise you, right? So, so it's greed, right? And, and then he, he never takes the time to say, for who am I even doing this for? Who am I toiling, depriving myself of pleasure? He says, this is also vanity and an unhappy business. Let's get it right out the gate. Everyone struggles with discontentment at one time or another. You may be struggling with it this morning. What, what is discontentment? simplistically put it's just a desire for something better than your present situation that's what it is that's what discontentment is now there's there's a holy discontentment there's a sinful discontentment a holy discontentment would be to look and see the oppression that's happening among you to not be content with the situation and let that discontentment drive you towards love of neighbor which would drive you towards action not just changing your your profile picture with a little banner around it that does nothing for anyone you may get the applause of fools but it's not love it's not love. Love is action. It's compassion that leads to action. I see you're in a bad way. I have compassion. I will move towards you to help your situation. That's a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment is what, man, we should be discontent as God's people when we look around and seek to change the scenarios of people's lives. You can't change the world. I get that. But you can change one person's world by loving them. By opening your home, by serving them, by befriending them, by continuing to stick with them even when they're unkind to you, right? That's a holy discontentment. There's a sinful discontentment that has two hands of everything and just saying, God, that's not enough. I have to have more, more stuff, more for me, not more for we, more for me. It's about me. Well, well that's, that's wrong. This world's broken by sin and should be better. We agree right? So, so it's, it's no surprise that broken people living in a broken world are discontent, right? We see that. But, but at the core, what's happening here? At the core, when we see our neighbor getting ahead, there's an old phrase that's called keeping up with the Joneses, right? You've heard that. Um, we can't stand to be outdone by our neighbors, so we labor. That's what's happening in that verse. This, this kind of thinking, is, it, was, it really is what gets a lot of people out of bed in the morning. I got to make more bank. I got to make more riches so that I can get ahead. I can live up to the standards in my society and in my community and maybe even look better so that they might look up to me. And now, okay, that might be okay, but you know where it gets wrong is where we actually step on the heads of our neighbors to go up the, the ladder one more rung. And that's what he's pointing out. That's where oppression comes in. That's what's happening, right? And, and when you and I pursue gain because we think that that's all there is to be had under the sun, others will get hurt. 
They will. You'll hurt people in your own family. You'll work 90 hours a week, not to provide the necessities that are in the home, but because you think you got to have the speedboat with the biggest motor. And you're oppressing your own, your own family because what they want is you. What they want is you. They might not want you now because it depends how far down the road you are in that. But there's a song called The Cat's in the Cradle. And I was not going to read all the verses, but you ought to listen to it. And I'll tell you what, it will break your heart if you have wasted your life pursuing things. And the son does grow up to be like the dad. And he wants nothing to do with the dad because the dad wanted nothing to do with the son. How did that come to be? He was trying to keep up with the Joneses. Now, envy might fuel. It might be fuel for advancing your career, right? But can I tell you, it's not without a cost. There's a great cost to it. And much oppression comes from that. So envy is the feeling that you deserve possessions, success, virtues, talents of another person. Listen to Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil, content heart gives life to the flesh. Did you, I'm going to read that again. That's not the full verse, but I want you to hear it. A tranquil, content, content. I'm content with the situation in the the predicament and the life and all that God has given me gives life to the flesh, the human, the person. But envy makes the bones rot. That's, you should think on that. All right, all right. So if envy or rivalry motivates much idolatrous labor and oppression, then perhaps it's best not to work at all. That's where he goes next, right? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. <laughs> that's, that's stark language. I mean, it, re- it really is. It, it's... He's saying, listen, so maybe laziness is the answer under the sun. Well, no, it can't be that, right? Because why? Well, because ha- laziness is hating your neighbor also. It's loving yourself. It's hating your neighbor. Uh, granted, granted, you're not stepping on the head of your neighbor to climb the corporate ladder. And that's because you've never seen a ladder. And you don't know where it's at. You wouldn't know what to do if someone put one in front of you. Why? Because you don't get out of bed. The only way you can step on your neighbor's head is if they placed it between you and the cupboard. And even if you had someone to deliver it to you, you wouldn't get out for that either. That's what he's saying. That sounds rude, but that's what he's saying. He's saying lazy and envy, both ends of the spectrum, come from discontentment. You're aiming for happiness. You're just going in a different direction, but the heart of the matter is still the same. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about laziness as well. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Good question. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Okay, so hopefully you can see that envy and workaholics does not bring contentment and joy. Hopefully you can see laziness does not bring contentment and joy. So, so what's, what's the answer? Well, before we get into the solution to a lot of the questions that are being presented here, let's look at a little parable that we find in Ecclesiastes 4, 13 through 16. Because he, he paints this picture, right? He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Notice this, by the way. We almost always instinctively as a culture think that with gray hair comes wisdom. That might be true most often. But that's not what he says in this text. The old king has, he has some age. He may not have gray hair. He might not have hair at all. I don't even know. But there's a young man who, he's poor, but he's a wise youth. 
So wisdom's a gift from God. Wisdom is a gift from God. You can have a young person who's very wise. You can have an old person who's very foolish. Neither, man, there's so many people that don't have wisdom even though they're older. They may have age. They may have more life experience. It doesn't mean they have wisdom to know what God thinks to do what is right in these particular situations. So here's this picture. And he goes, for he went from prison. So look at this rags to riches story. From prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom, he had been poor. He had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was standing in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Man, what's the heart of the passage, that little parable saying? This rags to riches story is about a man who goes from the ghetto to royalty. But he quickly realizes that fame is fleeting. And soon, soon he will be replaced and he will be lost in the pages of history and forgotten. No matter how good he was. That's that's what he's saying. So so what are we to see here? There's a a lot, but there's one common thread throughout this this text. And when I say this text, I mean chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Is that living for me instead of we tends to bring about isolation, discontentment, and oppression. That's what he's saying. But look at verse 6 again, because there's such a shining little moment. You're like, well, hey, you skipped some verses. Yeah, that's called the heart of the text. We're going to get there in a moment. I promise you. Okay? But he says, better is a handful of quietness or contentment than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. See, sometimes less is actually more. Right? And, and the quiet or content person, they, they have found the right balance. Work is a gift from God, right? Work was given to man prior to the fall. It's a gift, it's to be received, right? But you know what? It's not God. And when you make it God, it, it does horrible things in your life because it, you'll serve it instead of it being a means of serving you and your family. Right? Too many people have elevated work to be a God. So, so embrace the life that God has provided. Doing that brings peace. Get up. Work hard. Work to the Lord. Work unto the Lord. Give yourself to the job that you have. Do it with, with contentment and peace. And give thanks to your God that you actually have an opportunity to do that. The question is, is have you learned to be content? I mean, seriously. Now, this is something you learn and you're like, I think I forgot it. And you have to learn it again. And you have to repent. And you have to keep on learning it. But, but if not, and I say learn because you do learn this. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. But guess what? He's a kind man. So he tells us, we don't have to guess. <gasps> Wonder what it is. Bible code. I don't know. No, he tells the Bible over and over tells us the secret to contentment. Well, what is it? Well, hang in there. The question is, I want you to think about right now, is have, have you learned it? Have you learned it? If, if you could write it down right now, what would you write down? It's a good question. If not, my question to you, and, and really it's, it's the question Ecclesiastes is asking you right now this morning, is when will you stop chasing wind? When will you stop chasing wind thinking that that's going to be the thing that brings you contentment, happiness, and joy? Because that, that's what he's wanting you to think. 
When will I stop thinking if I only had a little more or if things were only a little different that I would be a much more fulfilled person? You do not know the future. You, do know, you don't know what's ahead, whether it's good or bad. These actually right now today, currently where you're at might be the best days of your entire life. You're like, no way. You don't know where I'm at. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I agree, man. The sun is shining on this dog's rear end. I'm loving life. Bills are paid. I got my freezer full. I got friends. Life. And if that's the case, rejoice in that. Give thanks to God. Embrace it. Embrace it. But you might think, no, you don't understand. I'm in a really bad way. Well, he continues to tell you it might get worse. I didn't come to hear that. Too bad. He keeps saying it over and over. Fam, by God's grace, live the life that God has given you instead of longing after the life that you think you have to have in order to be happy. That's what he continues to say. You can't control these things. I can't control these things. But I want to. I know that's where anxiety, fear, anger, all of it starts to boil out because I want to be essentially God. I know how to run my life. You're wrecking it right now. Only if you'd let me in charge, I'd get this thing figured out right now. It's pride. Here's the thing. You're wrong. I'm wrong. Malcolm Forbes, he's wrong. Many people die with a ton of toys, but nobody to enjoy them with. That person's lost. Because it's not possession that makes life worth living. It's people. It's people. And, and, and listen, if you're here, I know you have a people. I'm, I'm serious. I couldn't be more thrilled about how our church seeks to love and welcome people into the community. So if you're, you're like, I don't have family. My mom, my dad, they're dead. I, I don't have friends. You have friends here? So, so people... Is what makes life worth living because it's a gift from God. God ultimately makes life worth living, which we will get to, I promise. John Steinbeck says this in the book of East of Eden. He says, when a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influences and genius, if he dies unloved, his, love, his life must be a failure to him and his dying a cold horror. There's so many people who have all the toys in the world and they're some of the loneliest people and they're surrounded by people. But they can't enjoy it. Humans are not... Listen, humans are not made for isolation but community. Right? Like Genesis 2, before the fall, God says that there's one thing that in His, listen, perfect no fall, no sin creation that is not good. And it's this, it is not good that man be alone. That's before the fall. I mean, th think about that. God created man, God created woman to be social beings. God designed us as relational creatures. We were created to be dependent upon God and interdependent upon one another. And we hate that because of the fall. I want to be independent. I don't want to need you. It's fine if you need me. That makes me feel more fulfilled. I'll gladly help you. But you, I don't need you. Right? And, and this is so wrong. And it's, it's so much, 
It's so much of the cause of the hurt that we see all along the lines in this world. This should not surprise us because that God created us for community because we worship a triune God. We worship one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who have existed for all of time. There was never a time there was not God, and they, not they, He has lived in complete community as the triune God. I have to be very careful in my language. Don't want to be a heretic. So think about that. Delighted. He, didn't, he did not create humans because he was lonely. God is never lonely. He's always existed happily as one God, three distinct persons. So if, if God enjoys community, guess what he created his people who are his image bearers to enjoy? Community. We were made to love others and to be loved by others. Do you believe that? Do you think about that? Because that's the heart of what's being said. So the second and final point, when I say final, I don't mean that we're almost done. We will be. Is this, contentment in Christ leads to loving your neighbor and enjoying companionship. I want you to see it. I think it's clear as day. Look at Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Now you're like, well, Christ isn't mentioned there. Well, yes, but we have the whole Bible and not just Ecclesiastes, right? And so we'll look at, at some other parts. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and not another to lift him up, right? So, so think about this. You're, you're walking in the night in the desert and you fall down and it's really bad and you break your leg and there's no one there to help you up. This is a problem. It's a serious problem. You're probably going to die. But if you have a friend that's with you, it's, I mean, it's very simplistic, they can lift you up. They can help you. They can get you situated. They can go get help. You and I need people in our lives. And he continues, again, if two lie down together, he doesn't mean in a sexual way, by the way. If two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one, how can one keep warm alone? Again, if you're traveling and it's cold in the desert, and you're by yourself, and the temperature's dropping. You, and this might seem weird to you, but it's not. In that time, two friends could throw a blanket over top of you, and the heat from one another might help you survive a very cold night. If you're by yourself, you're probably going to freeze. You're probably going to die. Well, he continues. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So, okay, you're traveling. And you're by yourself, and, and some people come upon you to rob you. Okay, one-on-one, -on -one, some of you, I'm looking around, some of you. Very few of you probably would do okay. Very few of you. I'm looking around, some of you, one-on-two, mm, probably not. Maybe one guy in here, one guy in here. I know who he is, and that's why I like him in my corner, right? One-on-three, ah, my guess is no. Right? Do you see his point? There's, there's power in numbers when you're traveling. This is good. Two will withstand him. A three cord is not, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The point's clear that it's better to share your life and work than it, with the people around you than to try to make it on your own. We need each other. The value of life is not in what you earn or what you own, but the community that you're with that you can celebrate together and you can even struggle together. 
That's the joy of life. It's, it's not what you have. It's what you give that makes life worth living. Do you think like that? Or do you think along the lines of Mr. Krabs? Money, money, money. Got to have it. I, I need more. I need more. I need more. Why? So you can share it? No. For me. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I. Right? It's about me. No. He's saying it's about we. It's about community. It's about loving one another. Consider the old saying that says this, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. Why is that? Well, because I think a lot of times there are some people that might come around when you're failing because they actually like that you've, that you've stumbled and tripped on your face. Oh, that's so bad. And, I mean, seriously, you haven't heard from them in four years? They just show up. Oh, life's hurting, huh? I'm so sorry. But if you are doing good, man, you just won the Powerball, and they're not trying to get some cash from you, and they're celebrating with you. This is a good thing, right? You know who your friends are based on who comes around when you're celebrating. Because they're not envying you, they're rejoicing with you. And they're not trying to get something from you. That's the big difference. My wife has coined a phrase, maybe someone else said it before her, but I don't think so. It's become very popular. Popular. Yeah, making up words. It's celebrate what is good. And I've seen her try to live that with the people in her life. And I'm so thankful for it. So, so if this is good, well, it's worthy of celebration. Yeah, oh, this has happened, let's celebrate, right? And, and it takes a special amount of grace to do that. But the point is this, that you and I need one another. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, friendship is the one of the sweetest joys of life. Many might have failed beneath the bitterness of their trial had they not found a friend. That's so true. I know it from experience. I believe it. I've, I've experienced it. We need one another. America's rugged individualistic spirit has many times been a good thing, but it's fractured communities all too often. It, it's left many people isolated and desperate for meaningful relationships. So much so, listen, smartphones and all the social media stuff, there's been a lot of joy and good things that have come out of that, right? It's neither good nor bad. It's just a thing. It can be used for evil. It can be used for good. But it, it's never been, like some people thought this would be the cure for the isolation, but actually it's, it's helped people be more isolated many times. Sometimes it's helped, but not always. There's an epidemic of loneliness in this country. I'm telling you, and it's worse than COVID. It's a slower, more painful, miserable death. And if you'll take the time to talk, people, you can hear it. People came out with technology for a lot of different reasons, right? But one of it was so that we would never feel alone. But I know people that are connected to their, their, their glowing device, and they are more alone than ever. They're more alone than ever. They're more anxious than ever. Why? Because we need, by God's grace, we need a authentic relationships. Real, face-to-face -face friendships. Partnerships. Life. We need one another, right? Someone who can help you when you fall. FaceTime, you can't do that. You can't FaceTime a friend who's 8,000 miles away. That's hyperbole. But be like, hey, help me out, right? You just can't do it. it someone on FaceTime or Snapchat is not going to help you in a fight. 
You need people in your life. You need people to show up when things are going well. You need people to show up when things are not going well. You need people to rejoice with. You need people to weep with. And you better understand the difference when you show up at the house of feasting or mourning. We need one another. And you can't do that if you don't give yourself to a community of people. It's hard. I know. Once again, though, we're made to love others and we're made to be loved by them. Our lives actually depend upon it. Our intentional to, for the city's intentional commitment to community is something we will maybe change the method of how we do it, but it will be something that we are very intentionally committed to doing because the church is about gathering. It's not about particularly a service. This is a service. And if all you get to do is spend time with one another in this moment, if that's where you're at right now, that's fine. But you can't stay there. You have to create margin in your life to do that. I'm not going to talk long on this because I think you guys are knocking this out of the park. I see the way you love one another. I see the way that you're willing to drop whatever you have going on to help one another, to serve one another, to love one another. Praise God for that. But can I tell you, many more people need to know there's a community that loves Jesus like this and will love others by his grace, imperfectly at best, but to welcome them in. I've heard it over and over from so many people like you. But can I tell you that friendship, like all things in this fractured world, is also broken. (laughs) because if you were really paying attention like so friendship's the key Um, it's a big one but they're broken who's ever been hurt by a friend everyone if you've ever had one everyone because of sin you and I have conflicts we have conflicts with one another why because we seek to have our own way that's why I have conflicts and if you just go along with my way which is the right way you and I'll get along but when you push against what I think is right, well, now we're going to have some serious conflict. We had conflict the other night. It was supposed to be a really great dinner, and it was. It ended up being, and we had a boil. Um, literally, like we had a boil, like shrimp and all the things, right? <laughs> and we were to dump it out on the table. But instead, we dumped a different kind of boil out on the table. We still had shrimp, too. Um, we worked through it. If you're like, that, that's weird. They had conflict. <laughs> Get over it. Yes, we did. We did. We're good this morning. Praise the Lord. Why? Because we're willing to work through conflict. And too many people won't work through conflict. You're just done. You don't believe like I believe. You're out of here. Bye. I'm done with you. We cannot be like that. We hurt and betray other people. We know what it's like to have a friend fail us. Worse yet, betray us. It's the worst feeling I've ever experienced in my entire life is being betrayed by someone I love right? Thankfully, not my wife. (laughs) Thankfully, not my wife. But I've had a close friend betray me, and I'm sure I've done it to others. Many of us had to endure the heartache of losing a friend to death. It's hard. And as a result, I can tell you it's easy to grow cynical about friendships and people and humanity and, and, and close up our hearts and begin to isolate. Why? Because I don't want to feel that pain again. I'm not going to give my heart to somebody to just tramp on it and misuse it. So we become cold. We become isolated. We become guarded. And I never actually let you know who I am. We keep everything at a very comfortable surface level relationship. But can I tell you that friendship's a gift from God 
It's not God, but it is a gift. And yes, it's hard, and sometimes it's hurtful, but Jesus came to redeem friendships even. To make all things new, including our relationship with one another. What we need is a perfect friend. We need a perfect friend. And Christ is that perfect friend. He is the friend of sinners. <laughs> Thankfully, because that's all there is. It's all there is. And he, he's the best friend, right? Though our earthly friends may fail us, and we might be surrounded by people and still feel very isolated, Jesus stands by us no matter what. He is the perfect friend. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the perfect friend. His love for us is unconditional. It's not based on, on who we are or what we have or what we've accomplished or we finally have got cool enough or done the thing for the person to give me the attention and to actually be my friend. He's not like that at all. His love is not fragile. His love is not insecure. His love is not temporary. His love is constant. His love is perfect. He doesn't make promises and then fail to keep them like you and I do. No, He keeps every promise He ever makes. He will not turn on you. He will not reject you. His love is eternal. And He calls you friend if you're in Christ. If you're trusting in Him, if you placed your hope and your faith in Him, He says, that is my friend. And what does He do for His friends? Well, Romans 8, 38-39 says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, that includes recession, that includes no chicken in the freezer, no beans on the shelf, that, that, that means all things, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he's the best of friends. How can this be? Because this friendship's not founded on our good behavior or likability. The gospel is not about Jesus loves you because you're lovable. It's not about that at all. If you think it's about that, you have a works-based righteous understanding of the gospel. No, this is God loves you, doesn't sound real romantic, in spite of you. In spite of you. He fixes his love upon you, not because you're lovable. Here's a newsflash. In your grotesque sin, you and I are not lovable creatures. I am. No, you're not. And I'm not either. Not to a perfect God, but God, because He is full of love. He says, I love them in spite of them. Well, how much, how far does that love go? Well, I'll tell you, Jesus died for, by the way, the cross is, is the epitome and expression of His love, because it's, it's, where, it's where wrath and mercy kiss. What we deserve is wrath. What he gives is his love and his mercy. And it comes together on the cross. Well, so it's the greatest expression of love ever. If you ever wonder what's the greatest picture, it's Jesus Christ dying for sinners. Why is that the greatest picture? Because Jesus died for the envious workaholic in the first verse that we read. He died for the lazy sloth who won't get out of bed. He, he died for the greedy. He died for the rotten king. He died for the man who encouraged and paid for an abortion for his girlfriend. He died for the young 
girl who was scared and thought she had no other option who went and had the abortion. He died for the doctor who performed this heinous act. He died for the nurses that were in the room. He died for you, and he died for me. Why? Because we're good? No, we're not good. Why? Because we're lovable? No, we're not lovable. Because he's good. Because he's good. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, meaning we can't do anything to change this situation. We're weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Underline it, mark it, highlight it, look at it. Who's that? You, me. He died for the ungodly. Not the godly, not the good. There are no godly good people apart from Christ. He died for the ungodly. He says, but for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So what he's saying is there might be some people in this world who would die for a good person. You might be sitting here thinking right now, I would die for the person sitting to the right or the left of me. I love them enough that I I think that in the right situation, I would do that. You might, but you would never do that for the worst person in your mind. But the gospel says that's what Christ did. He died for his enemies. Look, it says, but God showed his love. He showed his love. He didn't have a warm feeling of love. He showed his love in what? In that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. And he brings us into his family through faith. Through faith in what Christ did through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, you and I are united to him. And nothing can separate us. Nothing. Not a thing. Through this union, listen, we receive all the benefits. All the benefits of what he's done for us, which means our justification, which means the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've repented of your sins. In that moment, you and I are fully forgiven of our past, present, and future sins. We have a perfect righteousness, not one we've created from within, but one that he's given to us as a gift. You're perfectly forgiven. You're perfectly righteous. You're justified. It doesn't end there. You're adopted into a family. You go from under the wrath of God. You go from an enemy of God. You go from in the domain of darkness as a beloved child in the kingdom of his beloved son. It doesn't end there. He's committed to you. And he will make you more and more like his son, which is called sanctification. And so, yes, we become more holy in our living, in our thinking. Why? So that he'll love us more. Oh, for Pete's sakes. No, not at all. But because that is the expression of faith being shown. It's okay. No matter where you find yourself as a Christian, it's okay to be there. It is not okay to stay there if the word of God is clear. We do not embrace sin. We turn from sin and we embrace our Savior. Well, when we do that, he gives us real power, the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like his son. When we fail, he doesn't go like this and say, I'm done with you. He says, nope, I will complete what I have begun. And he comes alongside of you in the gutter and he embraces you and reminds you of his warm affections and love towards you. And his love is what creates the heart that desires to be more like him. And he doesn't quit loving you all the way to glorification. When the day, when you're finally done struggling, ah, what a beautiful day it'll be. 
when, when you stand before him face to face, fully glorified, which means no more sin. No more sin. I see my Savior face to face. He's the one who's done all this work for you. Why? Because he's a God of love. He's a God of glorifying himself in and through this great expression of love. This is the God we worship, and he's created us for community. He's created us for one another. Jesus is the friend you and I never had. But if you're in Christ, you have him now, and he's not the friend you and I deserve. But his grace is sufficient. He's the true friend of sinners. He's the friend we need. He's the perfect friend. So the only question remains is what's the secret to contentment? That's where we started. The secret to contentment is very simple. I'll give you one verse. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If you can trust God for your salvation and your eternity, you can trust him no matter what your situation's in. Because God has already shown you he's worthy to be trusted. And if he can be trusted for your soul, you can put whatever you want in the line. Finances, relationships, turmoil, the, the, the state of the world, recession, depression. If you can trust him with your attorney and with your soul, you can certainly trust him with all things. That is what brings contentment. That requires grace. And thankfully, we worship the God of all grace. And so he'll give it to you. Ask him. Ask him. God, help me to trust you more. Help me to not lean on my, my own understanding. Give me wisdom. Give me grace. And he'll pour it out upon you. I promise you. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Proud says, I got my own understanding. Humble says, help me trust you. Help me trust you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do give you thanks that even in a world where it just seems like there's no justice to be found, that you're at work. Your work through your people. And so, Lord, help us to be a hopeful people. Help us to look to the God of all hope, Jesus Christ, and give us the grace. Give us much mercy and help to, to, to trust you. To not lean on our own understanding, but to know that you're good. And when we doubt, when we forget, Lord, kindly draw us back to the cross. Kindly draws back to the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And because of that good news, we have life with you and we have life abundantly. Help us to give our lives to one another in a way that pleases you and that's in a right alignment with the way that you've given yourself to us. Lord, we need much help. And you're God who's going to do it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.